Our scripture reading this morning comes from the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John, and I'll be reading the first 11 verses. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. By this my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we long for that joy and that peace that you promise, and so we rejoice And take heart that Jesus is ours and we are his. And we ask now that in this time, he, the great shepherd of the sheep, would be our pastor. That he would be our teacher and our instructor. That he would be our savior and friend. That he would be everything to us. And so we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts might be pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. You know, metaphors matter. Metaphors matter greatly. Uh, It's an election year, and so there are many discussions, one amongst them, that regarding the economy. And you'll notice people use different metaphors to describe the economy. It's one thing to speak of a pie that needs to be cut up and divided, parceled out, whereas the giving of something to one means the taking it away from another. It's a very common way of looking at things. It's a very different thing to describe the economy and care for it as the cultivating of a garden wherein there is space for things to grow and flourish or to wither and to die, wherein what happens here affects what happens there, but that taking one doesn't involve taking from the other. Different pictures and images, different metaphors for the economy shape different judgments about what success is, what failure might be, what responsibilities we have to one another, and so forth. Metaphors matter. And if that sounds a little abstract, think about things a little more personal and individual. If I were to call you a rock, I assume your response would be a little different from if I were to call you a brick. It's one thing to be told that you are strong and sturdy and enduring. It's another thing to have someone you think calling you rather dumb and slow, right? Metaphors matter. 
We communicate much, good or ill, as we speak to each other. And it's not surprising that Jesus, so often through his ministry here on earth, used metaphors, powerful pictures to depict the truths of his kingdom so that we could see them in his word and so that we could be reminded of them as we go about our daily lives. And we come to one of those powerful metaphors here. I am the true vine. Now, John the evangelist tells us a number of different pictures that Jesus offered to his disciples and through them to you and me this day. He's the good shepherd. He's the door. He's the way, the truth, the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And here, among these many I am statements, we find the picture of a vine. It's not a terribly difficult metaphor to unpack or to understand. Jesus here lays out the characters and their relation rather simply and straightforwardly, right? God is the vine dresser, according to verses 1 and 2. Jesus is the vine, according to verse 1, and then again in verses 4 and 5. You and I, if we are by faith united to him, we are branches in that vine, according to verse 2 and verses 4 to 6. And then as we turn to verses 8 and 10, at the end of our passage, we see that our actions, our behavior, they are the fruit that grows on those branches in the vine. That's not a difficult image. That's its power, its beauty. Its simplicity conveys so much, doesn't it? A good illustration by by simplicity's sake connotes and conveys and helps us to picture something that's more mysterious and difficult. It illumines it and unpacks it for us. Now, the difficulty of this metaphor is not its character. It's not identifying the pieces of it. It's the fact that we find it distasteful. Being a branch in the vine puts you in your place. And if I'm honest, I don't like to own up to that often. I suspect you great at the suggestion that somehow you're a branch in someone else's vine. As we read the Bible, as we go through our lives, we encounter and we have to own up to the fact that we like to think of our hopes as riding on our own two shoulders. We think of our own sins as keeping us from God. We think of our curse as looming and every struggle or failure as a sign of inevitably the doom that will come. We oftentimes worry that our faith though real, is perhaps too flimsy to be pleasing or effective before the Father. We oftentimes view our neighbors, those around us in the garden, as it were, as threats, as competitors, as those whom we've got to beat out. If we're honest, we view ourselves as slaves, needing to earn a master's approval. But with the image of a vine and the branches... We have a completely different way of living laid out before us. Our hopes are rock solid due to his promises. Our sins are forgiven. Our curse is borne by another. Our faith is strong enough, not because we hold on so tightly, but because he is so strong and he is its object. Our neighbors are gifts to us, occasions for joy and delight, not threats or competitors. And ourselves, our identity, is that of a son and daughter, someone blood-bought and purchased for God's family. 
The reason the metaphor is so powerful is because it grates against the way that our sin-drenched selves have been trained to live in this world. And so I want to spend a few moments exploring the metaphor with you as we see four different things that are laid out before us in Jesus' profound teaching on living in the vine. First we see in verse number two that indifference to the vine is impossible. Indifference is impossible. You look at verse 2, it says, Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it might bear more fruit. This is not unique or idiosyncratic. This is part of the warp and woof of Scripture that God does not leave us alone. We oftentimes seek to go our own way, but we cannot go from God's presence, as David the psalmist said. Where shall I go from your presence? If I go to the hills, you are there. If I go to the valleys, you are there. Everyone must deal with God. Those who are unfruitful, to the fire and the judgment. Those who are fruitful, the fatherly care of discipline and pruning. God does not leave us alone. We must deal with our Creator. We must deal with the one who has made us and commissioned us and set us upon a course. You perhaps have read C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity, where he famously pointed out that you must make a judgment about God and Jesus. He's either mad, thinking himself God, he's bad, devilishly calling people to worship him, or he is in fact God, but you must decide like Pascal of two centuries ago, we're told you must wager. You cannot stay indifferent. That is impossible. Because one day, verse 2 tells us, God will return. He will return in judgment there or He will return in discipline and care in maturing you and growing you now. Indifference is impossible, we see. Well, if we want to avoid indifference, if we want to live into and own up to this metaphor, how do we go about it? And and Jesus offers three thoughts that provide an answer, I think. The first is quite simple. Dependence is logical. It's grating if we're honest. We struggle to live a dependent life. Think about the last time someone invited you over for a meal or someone gave you a gift If you're anything like me, you probably had the impulse, if not the actual response, to say, we'll have you over next time, right? We have this deep-seated desire not to fall into someone's debt, right? Not to be cared for by another such that we can't prove and show that we will care for them in return. I have a a now-deceased relative, a, a grandmother, who would write thank you notes for thank you notes, right? Because she always wanted to respond with care and devotion to someone else's sign of care to her, right? That's endearing, and that's exhausting, isn't it? It doesn't end. It never ends. And we are shaped by that kind of structure, aren't we? We don't like to receive. We don't like to be dependent Children struggle with it, and all of us struggle when we return as elderly persons back to dependent states, don't we? We grate at the very idea 
But Jesus here tells us dependence is logical. In verses 4 and 5, we read this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. I'm a teacher and so when I'm reading a passage of the Bible where someone is overtly teaching, in this case a group of disciples, on the evening of the Last Supper, before he's to be betrayed and crucified, I'm cued into how the teacher is teaching, not just what he's saying, but how he's going about communicating it. It's my job and task to teach, so I want to learn and observe what's going on. And notice the repetition here. Jesus is repeating, I'm the vine, you're but the branch. In me, you can flourish. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And notice, he reiterates and he repeats. And good teachers do that because they want something to sink in and they realize we are prone to forget, to miss, or to cast aside what's uncomfortable. Vines and branches. We're Floridians. We understand this. Just a month ago, we did our triannual cleaning of our backyard. I trust some of you experience this regularly, where our little nice house in the suburbs becomes a jungle-ridden space that has to be cleared out. And so about every three or four months, the family has to go out and spend a Saturday where we're basically hacking our way through things that have grown up, right? Because nothing stops growing in Florida, right? And we would clear things out and... As I would hack away or saw through things, my boys would trot them out to the street to be picked up. Now, of course, the catch is in our neighborhood, bulk waste pickup is on a Friday, and I never have time to clean through the jungle that is my backyard until a Saturday, which means things sit for six long, hot, sunny days. And every time, Saturday afternoon, when we're done with the job, we will stare with a bit of pride in our work, and look at this huge mound of overgrowth that is no more, that is now there ready to be hauled off, and we will feel pretty at peace with ourselves. We did it. We took care of it. The yard looks clean. The pile looks large. That was a good day's work. And the boys, thankfully, take some pride in putting in good work and seeing a job done, and that's lovely. And then comes Sunday, and Monday, and Tuesday... And at some point, things start to smell and the animals move into the pile and it's still not getting picked up till the next Friday. It deteriorates and looks uglier and uglier sitting there by my front curb all week long until it's finally picked up. Why? Because those green vines and branches, those palms that looked strong and vital, that were overwhelming with their greenness on the tree have been cut off. They're withering away. They're choking on the sun's heat. They're being devoured by neighborhood animals, right? That which is made for the vine does not live and flourish apart from the vine. And Jesus is saying, you and I are those branches. We are those palms We are that which draws its strength and vitality from something else. Or we, like my ugly, nasty, smelly pile of overgrown refuse, wither and perish. 
dependence is logical. We can abide in His love. His joy may be in us. And we see such a beautiful picture of this, don't we? Each and every month as we come to the Lord's table. That Jesus doesn't simply provide for your entrance into salvation and into the life of the people of God. Baptism marks that, that you can't baptize yourself. You must have His cleansing work come upon you. He must grace you in bringing you in. But the Lord's Supper goes a step further and says that it's not simply that He gets you in and then you go and grow on your own, but that you must continue to return to receive His grace. You never outgrow dependence because you're made for dependence. You're made to be a branch. You're made to be a palm. You're made to grow as you receive strength and vitality from another. And as we come to the supper and feed upon Him, we're reminded of that. We taste that. Dependence is logical. There's a second way Jesus provides for us living into this and avoiding indifference. And that's that He provides for us even in His absence. Look at verses 3 and 4. Already you are clean, Because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Now, the word abide means remain or to stay with. It can apply to different things. A condition can abide. You could say, I've had a cold and it it just seems to, to be staying with me, as it were. I can't kick it, right? You could have weather, right? You can have a storm front that just seems to sit and it's not moving. We don't tend to experience that here in Florida. Things come and go and everything changes in 30 minutes. But in certain places of the country, you can have weather that just seems to sit and linger, right? It remains with you. But more often than not in the Bible, this word for abiding is a word of of someone staying with you, enduring with you. As we often might say when you go and and someone's perhaps in the hospital or someone's a shut-in, they're not able to get out. And so you go and you stay with them for a while. You don't necessarily do anything. You're with them. Your care and love is your presence. That's the kind of image being used here, that we are to stay with Jesus. We're to personally be with him and he with us. And you know what? That's a little ironic and strange and almost comical when you first read it. We began in chapter 15, verse 1. But of course, chapter divisions are just to help us find our place in our Bible. They don't somehow clue us into divisions in the story. The story began several chapters before. In chapter 13, Jesus has gathered his disciples. They're going to celebrate this last meal before his death. And Jesus washes their feet. And beginning in chapter 14, he starts to teach them of what's coming. And you may remember, if you remember the story that we uh, walked through just a month ago in Holy Week, that he speaks of how a little while and I'll have to depart. He'll depart? Surely they were mystified. He'd come to care for them, to save them, to restore the kingdom to them. But he speaks of departing and he speaks of suffering and he speaks in chapters 14 and 15, of how it will be better for them that he depart and leave, for another comforter will come. And we, of course, know that's the Holy Spirit that he'll give at the end of the gospel and in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. 
And that sounds well and good, but he's promising them a comforter, which frankly is a, a down word. It, it means a provision, but it means a provision that, that provides comfort, which means you're in a bind, right? It's kind of a backhanded gift. It means God's taking care of you, but you're in a position where you need comfort because you're sorrowing, you're sad, you're hurting in some way. And we see that pictured in the verse just before our passage. In John 14, 31, he's finished talking about giving the Holy Spirit this comforter, and he says, rise, let us go from here. And in doing so, he's he's calling them away from the table, away from the meal, and he's calling himself away from them. Because as they leave this place, he will be met by a mob. He will be betrayed by Judas. He will be taken and tried. He will be led to the cross. And he will wind up in a tomb. He's just told them, I'm leaving you. And now he tells them, stay with me. If you didn't know how the story ended, you might, you know, be inclined to think Jesus is being a little cheeky at this point. Right? I'm leaving. You stay with me. Right? It seems odd. It seems really strange. And Jesus is a bright guy and a good guy, as the story has led us to believe, so he can't be that crazy. He must mean something profound and true. What seems to be a big problem can't really be the case. He's telling us we can't flourish and live or do anything good if we're not staying with him. And so he calls us to stay with him, and he tells us he'll stay with us, but he's just told us that he's going to leave. And that he's going to leave so profoundly that we're going to need a comforter. Someone to offer us deep and profound comfort and sympathy for his absence. What sort of bind are we in? And notice, Jesus provides even when he leaves. Because he says that we're to abide in him and that we abide in him by abiding in his word. His word abides in us. And notice in verse 4. He says, abide in me, I in you, right? And he's just said, you're already clean in verse 3 because of the word that I have spoken to you. The word has already cleansed them, right? And verse 7 tells us the word is to remain upon them. Abide in me and my words abide in in you. We see this in the gospel according to Matthew. There's a profound picture. There are a couple moments on mountains that Matthew tells us. In Matthew 17, there's a picture of Jesus with three of his buddies. They go up on a mountain, and it's this remarkable episode of the transfiguration. And Peter, when he sees Moses and Elijah, who've long been dead, show up on Jesus' side, and they're beaming with light, and pyrotechnics are going on everywhere, Peter, in the understatement of the century, says, it's good that we're here, right? But Peter realizes that this is scary, this is overwhelming, and so he says, let's make tabernacles to block off the glory, because as a, a good Jew and reader of the Old Testament, he knows if you encounter God's glory and you're a sinner, you die. So let's, this is great. It's good that we're here, but let's cover you up, right? And and then God speaks, and, and Peter gets even more scared and awestruck, and he hits the ground. He's literally on the ground for fear, we read there in Matthew 17, 5. And and we hear that Jesus reaches down, he stoops down, 
and touches him. Surely it's, it's a hand on the shoulder. And he says, rise and have no fear. And it's interesting, the exact same picture occurs at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is about to leave. He's meeting not just the three, but the, the eleven disciples, as well as some others we don't know. And they're on a mountain again. And we're told that when He comes, they've been on the mountain, when He comes to them, they worship, but some doubt. There's fear. And the very next phrase is again, He came to them. And whereas in chapter 17, He reached down and touched them, now He came and He spoke. In other words, while He was with them on this earth, His physical presence, His touch, could provide comfort. It could be the means of His presence. But while He's going, He's still present. He still comes to them. He still ministers to them. But He comes to them with words. And there are words in Matthew 28, 19 that you're probably quite familiar with. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to Me. Go therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And lo... Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And then he leaves. Now notice, he promises to be with them. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And he even says, behold, which means see. Right before he leaves, he says, see, I'm with you. You won't see his body. You won't see his physical presence. But you will behold him. You will see him. You will fear from time to time as Peter and those disciples did. And he will come. But he doesn't now come to touch your shoulder and offer a consoling hand. He comes to speak. Reminding you that all authority is his. And that he'll always be with you even in the the thickest valley and the deepest darkness. And you can behold Him in His Word. You can abide with Him in His Word. His presence can be found in His Word. That's why as Reformed Christians, we speak of how when the Word of God is read and preached, Jesus literally speaks to us through human instruments. We believe that His Word is the primary means of His presence. And that's why we attend regularly and reverently to it. And we see in that that Jesus provides even for his physical absence. Here in John 15, there in Matthew 28. And we see it later in 1 John 1, the epistle written by the same author, where he speaks to that group of early Christians struggling in different ways, and he commends them first. He says, though you have not seen him, you've loved him. And though you do not see him now, you love him still. They've gotten this truth that they can abide with and love Jesus even though they can't hug Jesus. That they can abide with and love Jesus through their care and their attention to His Holy Word. And so, Jesus doesn't leave us alone, but He provides for us. He ministers to our need even now. Third way in which Jesus provides for us that we not grow indifferent, that we not grow 
weak or frail, but that we be strengthened for the journey ahead. We see here that glory, not mere survival, is the goal. Look at verses 9 to 11, the end of our passage. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Notice here, he doesn't want you simply to survive. He points to a baseline. He points to the way in which he abides with his Father. The perfect life of the triune God. Everything that one might need or want shared there in that fellowship and community of Father and Son here. We read elsewhere of Holy Spirit. Brimming over with fullness, with sufficiency, with joy and with peace. Lacking in nothing. Having everything in excess. That's the comparison point. He's not suggesting that he's going to help you squeak by. He's not suggesting that he's going to keep you on life support in some sort of dismal, limited condition. He doesn't tell you you're going to have earthly riches. He doesn't tell you you're going to have comfort in this life. But he tells you you're going to have deeper, greater, longer-lasting, pure joy like his shared with his Father. And that you're going to have that in him. He wants his joy to be in you and his joy to be full in you. Think about Jesus' joy. We read of it in Hebrews chapter 12 where we're told of many who've been faithful and done many things from that faith in obedience to God's call. And at the end of it, we're told that we've got this great cloud of witnesses and we're like them to run the race set before us. And we're to do so looking to Jesus or setting our eyes upon Jesus who's called there in in Hebrews 12 the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame. He wasn't oblivious to the pain. He wasn't inert to the public scandal and the shame. He was mocked. He was beaten and tortured. He was killed and slaughtered in the most gruesome way we humans have ever cooked up, and we're quite a bunch. And we realize that worse than all of that, he suffered the loss of that fellowship and delight with the Father on the cross because he bore our sin. The one who'd always known God's delight and God's smile. The one whom at his baptism and at that transfiguration, the Father had screamed from the heavens saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Here... The father said nothing. And the son had to scream out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How on earth did he make it through that? Being more attentive and attuned to the aches of our human condition than you and I could ever muster. How did he endure, as we read in Hebrews 12 too? He did it for the joy set before him. Because he possessed the joy of the Father and it was full. And because he had that joy to look forward to and he had that joy in God, he was able to put up with all the nonsense. He was able by faith to journey on with strength and endurance. He was able out of that joy to show love and self-sacrifice for others. 
And I don't know the exact story and condition of your life. I don't know the exact trajectory you would describe in, in offering your own individual story, but I know the Bible charts a basic sort of broad brushstroke description of what your life will be like. And there will be times of physical agony sooner or later. And there will be moments where you feel isolated, abandoned, betrayed, all alone. There will be moments where you feel ostracized and shamed, whether in the eyes of others or perhaps worse, yourself. There will be times where you feel none of the Father's endorsement and blessing. Far from a blue ribbon, you feel as though God has alienated or forgotten you. If we want to endure, and if we want to run that race that's set before us, if we want to obey and bear fruit, then we must have joy. We must have joy. Not ease, for it's not promised. Not simple comfort, for that's fleeting. But rock-solid, resolute joy. The kind of joy God has. The kind of joy God shares. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The kind of joy Jesus here commends to you and offers for you that His joy might be in you, and that His joy might be full for you. I'm reminded of my very favorite verse in the entire Bible. The last line of Psalm 16, verse 11, where David, having spoken of the good things in life, that God has set the boundaries for him well, and he honors God's favor and gratefully notes it before God, that all his blessings come from God. And where he looks at the bad and he speaks of death and decay and struggle and notes that while real and painful, it won't end because God won't let his Holy One see decay in the end. And then he goes on and he concludes, he sums it all up, the good and the bad, saying, you, Father, you, God, show me the path of life. It's not a request, it's a statement of fact. God shows him the path of life. And he describes that in this way. He says, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy. Greater joy, a higher quality of joy than could possibly be found anywhere else. Fullness, excess, brimming over with delight. Pleasures forevermore. Not the fleeting pleasure that's here tonight and gone in the morning. Not the fleeting pleasure that is but a mere few decades of friendship lost to death eventually, but pleasure that lasts literally forevermore, without end. Greater and longer-lasting joy and delight than we could possibly fathom, find, or imagine anywhere else. God shows us that, and that's what it means to have life that He lays out in His path or His way for us. And here in John's account of the gospel, we hear Jesus is that way. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the joy, and he wants his joy to be in you and to be full or overflowing in you. So that when you do suffer, and when you do struggle, and when shame comes upon you, and when criticism hits, you're able to endure. You know, that's the thing with vines and branches, You know this. Storms come through and they shake it. And there are seasons where the rain doesn't seem to fall from time to time. 
And there are days where the clouds cover the sun and its nourishment. If you're deeply rooted in the vine, you can endure those times. Because you've got rich, deep, lasting sustenance. If there's a weak connection, though, if you're a scattered branch, if you're off doing your own thing, you will be shaken to the ground. You will wither for malnourishment, right? You will fall apart for lack of light from the sun. Jesus is the true vine. He doesn't call you to an easy life. He doesn't call us to comfort. He calls us to a journey, a way that involves discipline and discipleship, that has great goals and purposes that are larger than ourselves, but inevitably involves the cross. For that's what he endured and he commends to us. But those difficulties, those struggles, our besetting sins and our problems with one another and with the world around us are never overwhelmed because of the joy that he gives us first and foremost. As we conclude, I want to remind you of one of my favorite parables. Jesus speaks of a a random guy. No background, no story of success or preparation. He's just a guy and he happens upon a field. And in the field, he happens upon treasure. It's the stuff stories, comedies are made of. As though someone has won the lottery almost. He's, He's just journeying around aimlessly and there's a treasure. And we're told that he buries that treasure and he goes and he sells everything that he has so that he can buy the field and have the treasure. And Jesus says, this is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, I am the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't want you to have a small life. He wants you to have a life filled with excess, filled with joy, full of peace in Him. In Him. As you live into the vine, as you give up everything for the sake of of entrusting yourself more fully to him. Let's pray and ask that he would more deeply enfold each of us into himself and that we might know his joy. Father, we thank you that in your wisdom you have shared your joy with your son. We thank you that Jesus was so full of joy, full of peace and confidence in you, that he was able to endure even the cross on our behalf and that our sins are put away and our transgressions are as good as forgotten for what he has done. And we confess that we have seemingly insurmountable obstacles before us at times and we have overwhelming senses of guilt or shame or failure and we want to be faithful. We want to journey with you well. We want to be fruitful for the sake of serving others and sacrificing on their behalf. We cannot do it on our own. So would you give us his joy? Would you enable us to abide in him and that he might remain with us through his word? Would you fix our eyes upon your word? Would you tie our hearts more closely to you as you hide that word in our hearts that we might not sin against you? We thank you that you have grace for every occasion and that your grace truly changes and transforms. And so we come yet again this day asking that you might have grace enough even for sinners such as us.
For it's in Jesus' strong name that we pray. Amen.